Hi, this is Leon Nafok. You're listening to the Audible original podcast, Fiasco, The AIDS Crisis. I'm here to tell you that there is a new season of Fiasco coming soon to Audible. It's a series about the 1984 shooting of four black teenagers on the New York City subway by a white man who thought he was about to be robbed. The incident turned the shooter into a symbol of vigilante justice and forced a national reckoning over crime, fear, and racism. Fiasco Vigilante will be available on July 27th only from Audible. Visit audible.com slash fiasco to learn more and sign up for your free trial. Fiasco is intended for mature audiences. For a list of books, articles, and documentaries we used in our research, follow the link in the show notes. Previously on Fiasco. AIDS is infecting more and more heterosexuals, men and women, teens and babies. The Surgeon General today prescribed education. Children, he feels, need to be warned in school about the danger of AIDS. Now, many people are not receiving information that is vital to their future health and well-being. Researchers say a new class of drugs are working. A cure for AIDS may soon be a possibility. Felt like some grand act of mercy made manifest. When we decided to make a season of fiasco about the AIDS epidemic, the arrival of the triple cocktail in 1996 seemed like a natural place to end our story. The most optimistic note since the terrible disease was first recognized. These new so-called wonder drugs. The triple cocktail represented a monumental turning point, a bookend to the era when HIV meant certain death. A new combination of drugs, including a new class called protease inhibitors, from the discovery of the earliest cases of AIDS, people have been imagining, dreaming of something like the triple cocktail, a medicine that could overpower the disease. It was easy to assume that the war on AIDS would be won with the development of a successful treatment. I've really had uh, about as close to a miraculous recovery, certainly more so than I ever imagined I would see. But the triple cocktail did not end the epidemic. While it helped people who were already sick, new people kept getting infected. About 50,000 the year after the triple cocktail became available, and 50,000 more the year after that. In the decades since the treatment was introduced, nearly one million people in the United States have been diagnosed with HIV. And so, in this final episode of Fiasco Season 5, I want to get into some of the reasons why the epidemic is still with us what needed to happen that didn't, and what could have been done that wasn't. I want you to believe that we can make America work again. To tell this part of the story, I want to go back to the early 90s, when a Democrat from Arkansas was running for president and promising a new approach to the AIDS crisis. I think most Americans still don't know how many people are out there who are HIV positive. If nothing else, Bill Clinton was willing to talk about HIV. Unlike his Republican predecessors, Clinton seemed less inclined to minimize or ignore the problem. The president should take responsibility for the problems of the country and be honest enough to say, we may not solve them in a year or two, we may not solve them all in four years, but at least we're going to roll up our sleeves and go to work. Let's get to work. Clinton-Gore for people for a change. At this point, scientists were still years away from developing what became the triple cocktail. But that didn't mean there was no progress to be made. After all, 
Treating people who already had HIV was only one front in the war on AIDS. The other was preventing people from getting it in the first place. And that was hard for reasons that had nothing to do with science or medical research. By the time Clinton took office, public health experts already had a bunch of good ideas for how to prevent more people from getting infected. Those ideas all had one thing in common. They required talking openly, explicitly, and pragmatically about how HIV was spread. And because that meant talking about sex and drugs, it ensured that AIDS would continue haunting the country and threatening people's lives long after the medical mystery was effectively solved. I'm Leon Nafok. From Audible Originals and Prologue Projects, this is Fiasco. Anytime you're talking about sex and drugs, it's a moral issue. We need to crack down on drug abuse, not promote more drug addiction. But we don't want people to use drugs. Well, that's great. There's no easy way to do that. We had a strategy that would save people from getting infected. And the question is, why aren't they acting? On this week's season finale, a new administration promises to turn the page on the HIV-AIDS epidemic and instead gets wrapped up in old arguments about sex, drugs, and morality. Ricky Bluthenthal was living in Oakland, California, studying sociology at Berkeley when he came face-to-face with HIV. The year was 1990. I was getting a PhD because I was interested in the problems of what we were then calling inner-city Black people. Bluthenthal had started his research with a focus on gangs and drug distribution. Now, he was part of a team that was studying the prevalence of HIV in people who used drugs in the Bay Area. Their data collection effort was centered on a neighborhood about 12 miles outside Oakland called the Iron Triangle. And it's called Iron Triangle because it's, there's a triangle formed by rail lines that cut through the community. It's like a very common thing that happens to historic African-American neighborhoods where they get split up and divided by undesirable infrastructure. Bluthenthal knew that racial disparities and health outcomes were structural and that if properly understood, they could be undone. By studying drug use and HIV in the Iron Triangle, he saw an opportunity to use social science to actually help people. I had an advantage in that... You know, I'm African-American, so I felt comfortable working in the community and being respectful and engaged with people. So I didn't come in with a lot of hard attitudes about any of it, about drug use, uh, about HIV. And so that gave me a chance to learn and then try to be responsive to the problems people were confronting. As part of the study, the researchers administered HIV tests to lots and lots of people who used injecting drugs. At one point, it fell to Bluthenthal to give a group of study participants their results. You know, I had like a a series of seven or eight counseling results that I had to share, and everyone was positive. And uh, and I just started crying. Remember, you know, this was the context of, you know, it was five years before we had effective treatments for HIV. So essentially, we were handing at what what felt like death sentences. I mean, it it shakes me up now. Um, 
You know, and it's, it was one of those uh, moments where you, you know, your rubber meets the road, right? Uh, you know, you have to decide, um, are you going to do something about it? What Bluthenthal decided to do about it was help start a program in Oakland where people who used injecting drugs like heroin could obtain clean syringes for free instead of sharing contaminated ones with other people. It was a model that first gained traction in the Netherlands and crossed over into the United States in the mid-80s. There are some cities where groups of individuals have set up privately run exchanges. Being a heroin addict is bad enough, and I don't really feel I want to get AIDS, too. So the clean needles work for me. The premise of needle exchange was straightforward. When people who are using drugs together share syringes, they end up sharing blood. And if one of those people has HIV, the rest are at extreme risk for getting it, too. The reason so many people were sharing syringes was that they were hard to get. And the reason for that goes back to the war on drugs, which began under Richard Nixon in 1971. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. Nixon's offensive led to a host of new laws around the country aimed at making it harder for people to use drugs. There was a bit of a cannabis or marijuana panic in the late 70s. So the Department of Justice developed a model drug paraphernalia law that was really focused on cannabis. Marijuana has become so widespread that virtually anyone is likely to be a user. Opponents say there is no such thing as safe marijuana. So they wanted to get rid of roach clips and shut down the smoke shops. But in the course of doing that, they added other things, right? And one of those other things they added was syringes. Selling syringes became illegal in most states. And some states even banned possession. Before long, syringes were extremely hard to come by. And those who needed access to them multiple times a day started sharing them with each other. Unsurprisingly, that had some major health consequences. And as heroin use rose over the course of the 70s, some injecting drug users in New York City started coming down with a respiratory disease nicknamed junkie pneumonia. Others developed a condition that was referred to as the dwindles because the people getting sick looked like they were wasting away. More recent research has revealed that these conditions were most likely caused by AIDS which circulated among drug users in New York for years before crossing over into other populations. As you heard in our first episode, researchers only identified it as a new disease in 1981, after it started showing up in gay men. In the United States, the focus was on sexual minority men, and for good reason. The problem we had then, we still have a problem now, which is that people who inject drugs aren't a particularly sympathetic group, and unlike sexual minority men, they're not able to mobilize politically at the same level. The earliest needle exchange activists in the U.S. knew that what they were doing was illegal. They were distributing drug paraphernalia. Their hope was that local governments would see the good in it and potentially even take over the exchanges themselves. But that wasn't going to happen without a struggle. Handing out needles is illegal throughout most of the country. Many people believe it keeps addicts addicted. To many politicians and government officials, 
needle exchange sounded a lot like enabling drug use. It sends a terrible message that we are encouraging people or we are at least accepting the fact that these people are are drug users and not doing very much to, to get them off of it. It's almost like throwing in the towel. In 1988, President Reagan signed a law that banned federal agencies from providing funding for needle exchange programs. Here is Reagan's Surgeon General, C. Everett Koop, explaining the politics around the decision. It's very difficult, even with people who are quite reasonable about the problems associated with AIDS, they can't bring themselves to countenance a program that seems to aid and abet an illegal and an immoral practice, uh, namely IV drug abuse. The funding ban put a very low ceiling on how widespread needle exchange could become. According to the text of the law, the ban could be overturned, but not until there was definitive evidence that needle exchange reduced the spread of HIV without simultaneously increasing drug use. As public health experts set about conducting that research, small locally funded exchanges continued to pop up around the country. The program co-founded by Ricky Bluthenthal was among them. In 1992, he and his team set up shop in West Oakland, near an area where drugs were sold. They were supported by tiny grants from community organizations and sourced their supplies from another, more established exchange in the Bay Area. So we just set up a table. We have educational information, condoms, clean cotton, uh, and then there'd be a big red bucket to collect the used syringes in. And then we'd have our cases of clean syringes. That was the system. Bring used syringes, toss them in the big red bucket, and leave with one clean syringe for each one you brought with you. Bluthenthal and his team distributed thousands of syringes during the first few months of the Oakland program. Through it all, they got no support from any government agency. In fact, they did their work knowing they could be arrested at any time. Until government officials at the local, state, and federal levels embraced needle exchange, that would be the status quo. Then, Bill Clinton became president, and suddenly there was reason to hope that needle exchange could come out from the shadows. I was born in a little town called Hope, Arkansas. After 12 years of Reagan and Bush, many AIDS activists thought there was at least a chance that the Clinton presidency could be different. To change all our people's lives for the better and bring hope back to the American dream. After he was elected, Clinton took steps to signal his commitment to public health. One was to task his wife, Hillary, with shaping his administration's approach to health care. Another was to nominate an unapologetically progressive doctor named Joycelyn Elders as Surgeon General. I was a sophomore in college when I realized that I wanted to be a doctor. Growing up in rural Shaw, Arkansas, population 99. 98 when I'm in Little Rock. Elders didn't know anyone who was a doctor. And she got very little health education at school. You know, where I learned the most about sex education, or really more about menstruation, and all, was from the leaflet that Kotex put in the Kotex box. Elders went to medical school and became a pediatric endocrinologist. In 1987, while Clinton was governor of Arkansas, he put her in charge of the state's Department of Health. By that point, AIDS was affecting people of color at twice the rate of white people. Black women, in particular, were 12 times as likely to contract HIV as white women. From her position in the state government, 
elders tried to do something about the disparities by pushing for comprehensive sex ed and free condoms. I was being called the condom queen. And in fact, I had a condom tree on my desk. Wait, what's a, what's a condom tree? It, well, it was a, a rubber tree, <laughs> a tree that the nurses made for me, the public health nurses, condoms of all different colors. It looked like a Christmas tree and sat in the middle of my conference table. And so you could, uh, you could take one if you wanted one? No, they couldn't take them off my tree. But then <laughs> there was plenty of them sitting out in the condom bowl out in my office that you could just reach in and grab some. Elders made it a point to try to reach people who had been overlooked in a lot of HIV prevention messaging. She found that most of her ideas, particularly on sex ed and the distribution of condoms, were wildly unpopular in Arkansas. Anytime you're talking about uh, sex and drugs, it's a moral issue rather than a public health issue. And that has made Dr. Joycelyn Elders Arkansas's most controversial woman. They wanted to tell me how God was going to strike me dead and stuff like that. Leave it out of schools everywhere across this nation, not just Arkansas. Sex education is pornography. And I felt that they were concerned about what they were concerned about, but I was concerned about the young black girls that I was seeing lost in the Delta that was being abused because of lack of education. Nothing could keep me from worrying about it and doing everything I could to make a difference. I had trouble sleeping at night, but I was determined that we were going to do something to make a difference. Governor Clinton, at least, seemed to appreciate Elder's willingness to dive headfirst into controversial issues. And when he became president, he once again called on her to serve in his administration. Dr. Joycelyn Elders, the former health commissioner of Arkansas, now President Clinton's choice for Surgeon General of the United States. Almost immediately, Elders became a lightning rod for scandal. A few months into her tenure, she caused a media frenzy by suggesting that the legalization of drugs could be good for society. And I do feel that we would markedly reduce our crime rate if drugs were legalized. Conservatives immediately jumped on elders' comments. A right-wing lobbying group circulated petitions to request her dismissal. Eighty-seven House members signed a letter calling on elders to resign. Rush Limbaugh mocked her on his show. show. Time now for a little comic relief. America's number one national embarrassment speaks for itself. Here's Joycelyn Elders and her theories on legalizing drugs. <laughs> Here's Elders responding to the criticism at the time. Despite many of the comments and editorials and reports that's been about me, I'm still grateful. Because, you see, if I was walking around not saying anything that was at all controversial and that was all neutral, first of all, you wouldn't write about me. (laughs) Secondly, if it was something that was right and simple and easy and everybody accepted it as a matter of fact, it would already be done. Legalization may have been a pipe dream, but needle exchange was at least a somewhat more realistic policy idea. To elders, its potential for slowing the spread of HIV was obvious. If somebody who has HIV uses the needle and then you use the same needle because let's say you can't afford to buy them, well, then you are injecting the virus into your body. And you may not know that for a year, two, or ten. 
So that was why they developed the needle exchange program, and then that reduced a lot of the HIV spread in a community. As Surgeon General, Elders says she always supported needle exchange and understood what it meant for programs to have to operate without support from the federal government. Some communities had really gotten tiny little grants, like from churches and other places, and they were passing out clean needles from the trunk of their car. During the campaign, Bill Clinton had indicated that he was open to lifting the Reagan-era funding ban on needle exchange programs. But if the model was going to win the administration's blessing, activists would need other players in Clinton's orbit to push him on it. That included Donna Shalala, Clinton's Secretary of Health and Human Services. We saw needle exchange as a mitigation strategy to reduce the incidence of AIDS and to save lives. Uh, Excuse me. Uh, If I could interrupt for one moment, I've got to let him in. Here he is. You should know my dog is named Fauci. Really? Yeah. (laughs) He's a rescue dog. Hi, Fauci. When I went to pick him up, they said he had run into an Italian restaurant and he needed an Italian name. And I said, I'll call him Fauci. (laughs) Tony said he'd been called worse. (laughs) Before she joined the administration, Donna Shalala had been the chancellor of the University of Wisconsin. She says the job prepared her for the pressure she faced from AIDS activists as HHS secretary. I knew that we were going to be pushed by ACT UP and all of the groups who were in a desperate state. So that was expected as part of the job. I was a political scientist. I had been leading major research universities. So people getting into my face was something that was expected. During Clinton's first term, Shalala enraged AIDS activists by suggesting that more research was needed to determine whether the needle exchange funding ban should stay in place. The administration's stance on the issue became a kind of litmus test for a lot of activists, a sign that Clinton was willing to slow walk certain policies that posed a political risk. Here is a protester confronting Clinton about it at an AIDS event. There's been steps taken here, advocated to be taken, like legalizing needle exchange that have been talked about for three years. Where have you been? Didn't you listen to what we said before about what we've done the last three years? Skeptics of needle exchange continued to insist there wasn't enough empirical evidence that the model worked and that it didn't result in more people using drugs. But the opposition was often about more than just data. For many, it was rooted in a fundamental concern about the core of American drug policy. Agreeing to provide people with drug paraphernalia would mean acknowledging that the zero-tolerance, just-say-no approach to drugs didn't work. It would basically mean throwing out the philosophical underpinnings of the whole drug war. There's no question that the right signal for the government of the United States to send is to say to somebody, if you're a drug addict and you need to use intravenous drugs, Come into a center and let us help you get off drugs. This is former House Speaker Newt Gingrich weighing in on the needle exchange debate at a press conference. That is the only message we should give drug addicts. That the government's job is to help you get off drugs. It is not the government's job to try to make killing yourself marginally safer as you do it. It wasn't only Republicans who opposed the idea of undoing the ban. 
Members of Clinton's own party were apprehensive, too. There was a debate within the Democratic Party. I mean, you cannot say that this was just the Republicans. The party itself was torn on the issue because of drug addiction and because of crime related to drugs. Not all prevention measures were so fraught. As HHS Secretary, Donna Shalala focused a lot on public health messaging through popular culture. Thank you all for coming. AIDS is often thought of as a hopeless problem. Today, we are here to talk about solutions. In early 1994, Shalala announced a prevention initiative that the Clinton administration had developed with the CDC. It would include a series of PSAs starring celebrities like Jason Alexander and Martin Lawrence. This campaign is focused on young adults because studies tell us that young Americans are more sexually active than ever before and they are not taking proper precautions. So it was very important for us to approach young people. So we went to the entertainment industry, but mostly to the raps and to uh, the music industry. We literally needed everybody that communicated with young people to educate the entire society about AIDS. I'm Anthony Kiedis of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and I've been naked on stage. I've been naked on magazine covers. In fact, I was born naked, and of course, I'm naked whenever I have sex. And what I have here is a condom, a latex condom. I wear one whenever I have sex, not whenever it's convenient. The Clinton administration's media push coincided with another leap in the growing public awareness of HIV and AIDS. Much like Rock Hudson years earlier, Several famous people disclosing their diagnoses changed the public understanding of what HIV was and whom it could affect. The most famous of these was NBA legend Magic Johnson, who had revealed his diagnosis back in 1991. I think sometimes we think, well, only gay people can get it, only uh, well, it's not going to happen to me. And here I am saying that it can happen to anybody, even... Later, there was Eazy-E from NWA. Just like Magic Johnson, when he called it, you know, when stuff like this happened, they just need to come out and speak and let other people aware of it so, you know what I'm saying, we can try to contain this stuff because it's getting bad. You know what I'm saying, I guess. There was also Pedro Zamora, the activist who appeared as a housemate on MTV's The Real World in 1994. I will probably not see the age of 30. I will probably die. As he lay dying, even the president called. I just called to tell you I was thinking about you and praying for you. He might not be able to answer, but he understands everything. Okay. All these disclosures went a long way towards educating the public about HIV risk and prevention. But activists were frustrated that the policy changes Clinton had seemed to support as a candidate weren't materializing faster in his presidency. And after the 1994 midterms swept in a new conservative Congress, the political possibilities seemed even more limited. As the activist Sean Strube wrote at the time in his magazine for people with HIV, this administration's priority is all about image and media. As I write this, they are cynically trying to have a press flurry of pseudo-action prior to World AIDS Day. As it turned out, World AIDS Day in 1994 would end up generating a lot of press for the Clinton administration, just not in the way they had hoped. This is World AIDS Day. 
There were ceremonies and observances around the world, but very little in the way of encouragement. The seventh annual World AIDS Day took place on December 1st, 1994. As part of the event, Surgeon General Joycelyn Elders was invited to speak and answer questions from the press at a United Nations forum. You know, I don't think I, the speech I gave was necessarily that earth-shaking, but a psychiatrist asked me about masturbation. I think that that is something that uh, it, it's a part of human sexuality that perhaps should be taught. And I feel that uh, we have tried ignorance for a very long time, and it's time we try education. Elders didn't think anything of it. It was the kind of thing she said all the time to all kinds of audiences. Dr. Joycelyn Elders proved once too often that speaking your mind, especially on issues as sensitive as sex education and sexuality, could be very bad politics, especially with the Republicans breathing down the president's neck as they are. Within days, Elders was being pummeled in right-wing media. Why does the president keep her? I assume he shares her values. I assume he thinks it's okay. For Clinton and his political advisors, it was the last straw. A little more than a week after she made the comments about masturbation, Elders was forced to resign. Dr. Elders was fired today by President Clinton. In a letter to the health secretary, Donna Shalala, late this afternoon, Dr. Elders writes, President Clinton and I maintain our strong mutual respect for each other. She also says that as a private citizen, she intends to continue speaking out on the public health causes that are, as she puts it, dear to her. Here's Elders talking about her firing the week it happened on the Today Show. You know, I really felt that all of the comments I made were true. And, you know, I think that the country needs to approach many of these issues. And the longer we wait, I feel the more children we are going to lose. And I don't feel that, uh, you know, I should start second-guessing myself today. After she left Washington, Elders returned to her home state. She became a professor at the University of Arkansas and toured the country as a speaker and educator. You know how I was. I never tiptoed around very much. I just said what I thought and believed. I, I was sorry, you know, to have, to have lost the position. Now, I'm not saying that. But the next five years or so, I was all over this country talking all of the time. Yeah, I, I, in fact, that was all I did, was run around running my mouth. On one occasion, Elders told an audience that she regretted not advocating more firmly for needle exchange while she was in government. Politicians, she said, should drop all this crap about not using federal money for needle exchange programs because they don't want to support IV drug use. Is it all right, she asked, to support death? Good morning and welcome. In 1995, the year after Joycelyn Elders was fired, Clinton appointed a brand-new 23-member advisory council on HIV and AIDS. Uh, I'd like to begin by thanking all of you for your service on this advisory council. We need your advice, your wisdom, your enthusiasm, your urging, and America needs your service, and I thank you for it very much. As you know... Both the Reagan and Bush administrations had appointed their own advisory councils to make recommendations about the epidemic. And both times, members had resigned publicly because so little of their advice was taken. Clinton's new council was meant to signal that he was going to do things right this time. 
and that unlike his predecessors, he would actually listen to the experts. One of the members of the new AIDS Council was a lawyer from Chicago who had been a fundraiser for Clinton's 92 campaign. His name was Bob Fogel. I was just a, a regular person. I've loved politics all my life, and I had met Clinton and uh, really thought he was terrific. After Clinton won, Fogel thought about trying to become an ambassador, but his wife nixed the idea of a family move. So I looked at boards and commissions, and AIDS was a big issue, and I thought, you know, I can pivot away from being the trial lawyer guy. I can do, hopefully, something that would be useful and, and contributory to the well-being of our country. So I figured I would ask if I could be appointed to the President's Advisory Council on HIV-AIDS. When Fogel showed up to a hotel in Washington for the council's first meeting, he realized right away that he was the odd man out. The night before our first official meeting and swearing in, we made a circle in the little meeting room in the basement area and introduced ourselves. I was uh, almost a little embarrassed at how little I really knew compared to everybody else. The other council members were medical professionals or had long personal histories with AIDS activism. The person who introduced himself right before Fogel was an activist with HIV who had spoken at the Democratic National Convention. One of the things he said was, you know what, you know, we've been pushing Clinton to do stuff related to AIDS, uh, make it a focus of his administration. And frankly, he figured he'll give the straight white guys in the suits one more opportunity to get it. And if they don't, then he would be done with them. Then it was Fogel's turn to speak. And I said, well, I'm one of those people and I'm here to learn. And if I end up getting it, then there's really no reason why the straight white guys in the suits in the White House uh, shouldn't get it either. As part of his work on the Advisory Council, Fogel was briefed on the connection between intravenous drug use and HIV. It was clearly a huge problem. By that point, IV drug use accounted for about a third of new HIV cases in the U.S. But when Fogel learned about needle exchange, he was extremely skeptical. When I first heard about needle exchange, it was like, are you kidding me? You want to give needles to drug addicts? Aren't you promoting the use of, of drugs, there must be a different or better way to deal with this issue. But as Fogel learned more, he started to take a different view. Back home in Chicago, he met with an activist and drug user who ran an exchange. You know, I asked my, uh, I would say, straight white guy in the suit sort of questions, you know, gosh, you know, why are you doing this? And why does this work? And what are the benefits? And aren't you afraid of, you know, and those sorts of things. And so, you know, it began to make sense. It wasn't just giving needles to drug addicts. It was perhaps getting some of them into drug treatment, and it was certainly counseling them on the dangers and risk of AIDS. And if, if they had AIDS, perhaps into uh, some treatment programs for that as well. Back in Oakland, Ricky Bluthenthal continued to run his needle exchange. Over time, he had become an expert on harm reduction the idea that drug policy should be focused on reducing the negative consequences of drug use as much as possible, rather than trying to punish or restrict people out of addiction. Bluthenthal felt that the scientific evidence and the moral imperative were aligned. And if other people couldn't see that, then it wasn't necessarily worth trying to engage with them. 
the people arguing against these programs aren't even in the same universe, as far as I'm concerned. They're dealing with a set of problems that have nothing to do with the individual that I'm talking to across the way. Um, They're living in a world that's full of moral fictions and fear that misunderstand the harm that's done by substance use in communities. From Bluthenthal's perspective, those who opposed needle exchange on moral grounds were simply not interested in HIV prevention. The people arguing against us were fine with people dying from HIV AIDS. There's no solution, right? So they're like, oh, we don't want people to use drugs. Well, that's great. You know, there's no easy way to do that. And the things that you've been doing at that point for 20 years, we now know definitively don't help. But as long as the laws didn't change, needle exchange volunteers continued to risk arrest. In 1995, Bluthenthal and several of his colleagues went on trial for distributing drug paraphernalia. Bluthenthal says he was confident the jurors would find him to be a sympathetic defendant. I was a young African-American man getting a PhD at UC Berkeley, and I had a bunch of evidence on my side. So, you know, I think there were a lot of people in the jury box rooting for me. After deliberating for four hours, the jury found Bluthenthal and his colleagues not guilty on the basis that their work was a benefit to society. It was the third time the county DA had tried and failed to prosecute needle exchange activists. For all the worry that needle exchange was politically deadly, it seemed to have grassroots support within the communities that actually had programs. But reversing the ban on federal funds still didn't seem to be a priority. Never again should Washington put politics and party above law and order. From the start of his presidency, Clinton had always gone to great lengths to position himself as a proponent of law and order. Not some hippie, as he was often portrayed, but someone who took the drug war seriously, just like Reagan and Nixon had. After Republicans took control of the House and Senate, Clinton felt he had even less room to take chances on progressive policies. As he prepared to run for a second term, he decided to appoint a new drug czar, a retired general named Barry McCaffrey, who was a hardliner on drug policy. For now, at least, Reagan's ban on funding for needle exchange would remain firmly in place. Are scientists on the verge of making AIDS a manageable disease? There was positive news on that issue, but some caution, too. When the triple cocktail was announced in 1996, the whole outlook of the AIDS epidemic shifted. Over the following year, the mortality rate for people with AIDS in the U.S. dropped by almost 50 percent. We have a lot to celebrate. For the first time since the epidemic began, deaths due to AIDS in the United States have declined. For the first time, therefore, there is hope that we can actually defeat AIDS. And yet there were still more than 50,000 new cases diagnosed that year. And the racial disparities were only getting more stark. In 1996, 41% of infections were diagnosed in black Americans, even though they only made up about 13% of the country's population. More and more African-American women are being infected through heterosexual contact. Their children are also at risk. 
1997, the CDC released a major study concluding that IV drug use was the primary driver of new HIV infections. Expanding needle exchange and reversing the ban on federal money had never seemed more urgent. Here again is Bob Fogel, the trial lawyer who served on Clinton's Council on HIV and AIDS. The benefits of federal funding is it bypasses the states, the governors or the legislatures, and programs could be set up where needed in cities and states where it otherwise wouldn't occur. And the federal government has the deepest pockets, you know, for the federal government to put $500 million or $150 million into needle exchange programs would have been huge. I mean, they could have started programs in a lot of major cities across the country. The President's Advisory Council on HIV-AIDS was in complete agreement that the federal government should fund needle exchange. They had said as much in a formal recommendation, but the White House made no moves to follow through. Fogel was losing his patience. And the question is, why aren't they doing something so important? Why aren't they acting? Why aren't they responding? I mean, are we just, you know, in my head, are we just a phony front and... You know, at that point, it's like, are we wasting our time, you know? And and if they're not going to follow our recommendations, let alone this one in particular, then let's just quit wasting, you know, time and money. So, yeah, I was pissed. (laughs) Frustrations reached a boiling point at a council meeting in July of 1997. Members of ACT UP interrupted the meeting, demanding faster movement on a wide variety of issues. After the protest subsided, Fogel spoke up in solidarity. And I raised my hand and I said, look, uh, we've made multiple recommendations on this that appear to be ignored. No action is being taken. There's no good reason for not taking action. And perhaps maybe what we ought to do is just resign en masse in protest. And somebody across the room yelled, I second the motion. The press people that covered our meetings, you know, jumped up like, holy shit, you know, Fogel has just moved that uh, the council resign in protest over their failure to certify needle exchange programs. After the meeting ended, the council chairman pulled Fogel aside. And said, great job. This is terrific. You know, the press is going to run with this. This is really going to put pressure on them. Some harsh criticism today for the president, and it comes from his own advisors on AIDS. Especially critical of the administration's failure to fund programs for drug addicts, to exchange dirty syringes for clean ones. To help I remember uh, my mother called me uh, a few days later. Uh, She told me she read about me in the Springfield Union, which is in Springfield, Massachusetts. And she was so proud of me. I said, "Uh, Mom, I want to give needles to drug addicts. She said, well, if you think it's the right thing to do, I'm for it. In the spring of 1998, the years-long pressure campaign on Clinton to reverse the funding ban appeared to finally be working. It had been almost a decade since the ban was put in place, and it was set to expire soon. If the administration wanted to make a change, it seemed like the perfect moment. HHS Secretary Donna Shalala was ready to certify the research required to change the policy. To confirm that needle exchange programs did reduce the spread of HIV, and that they didn't increase drug use. 
In private, Shalala tried to convince the president that the scientific basis for the policy was unimpeachable. I made every argument I possibly could. He knew what the arguments were. He had a letter in his hand from all the scientific leaders and public health leaders of the department. Still, Clinton wouldn't commit. At one point, Shalala says, the White House urged her to hold off on certifying the research. Instead, they wanted her to suggest that the efficacy of needle exchange was still up for debate. Someone from the White House called over and said, tell Shalala to announce that we needed more research. And I said, I I will not repeat on this program what I said. (laughs) But basically, I said no. That was ridiculous. I was not going to say to researchers we needed more research when they said the research was clear. This was a matter of integrity for the department and for me personally. Shalala was confident that the president understood the science just as clearly as she did. If anything was preventing him from embracing needle exchange, it wasn't the quality of the research. It was politics. The delay, delay, delay meant to me that we were making a political calculation. It wasn't substantive. And the call that uh, maybe Shalala should say we need more research was the tip-off. Shalala was resolved to publicly validate the idea of needle exchange, regardless of what Clinton decided to do. So her office scheduled a press conference for Monday, April 20th. Shalala's hope was that by the time she took the podium, Clinton would have made up his mind to undo the ban. The president could lift that ban if he could certify with scientific evidence that such programs reduced the rate of HIV infection without encouraging drug use. Scientists and activists who had been advocating for needle exchange were told to expect good news. But Shalala says she wasn't sure what the president's decision would ultimately be. The press conference was one or the other. I warned everybody before the press conference that it was possible the president would say no. It turned out that Shalala was right to temper expectations. Less than an hour before the press conference, HHS was contacted by the White House to say that the president would be keeping the ban in place. The department scrambled to adjust its plans, delaying its announcement by three hours. That day, Bob Fogel was with his brother at a Red Sox game in Fenway Park when he received a page to join a conference call. He took it in the parking lot. We got on the call and uh, the news was broken that the final decision had been made that there would not be a formal certification. And I would say I was shocked. I mean, it just seemed like, and I hate to use this word, uh, so it, but like a flip-flop. We were heading down this road and suddenly uh, they chickened out. I guess is how I would describe it. It was very disappointing. At the press conference, Secretary Shalala did what she had come to do and certified the research findings required to overturn the ban. But, as she explained to reporters, the ban itself was staying put. In Washington today, the Clinton administration has decided to maintain the ban on using federal funds to pay for needle exchange programs. Those are the ones designed to prevent the spread of AIDS. It was painful. It was painful because the evidence was so clear. It was heartbreaking for me to face the scientists and say the president said no. I didn't like it. I didn't like transmitting it, but he made the decision. The Secretary of Health and Human Services, Donna Shalala, said there is evidence that the programs do reduce the transmission of HIV 
without significantly increasing drug use. But she said that state and local governments have to pay for the programs. I suppose it was uh, a compromise. You know, I, I was shocked. I wished they had bigger balls than that. Uh, but that was better than silence. Journalists reported that scientists seated next to Shalala looked visibly uncomfortable. I wish I could play you some audio from the event itself, but it was limited to print reporters only. Here's Shalala explaining the compromise a few days later. Federal money uh, doesn't pay for everything that's important in this country. And in this case, the administration made the decision not to make this an eligible activity under prevention funds. The most important message today is that the science is now there so that local communities ought to look at their strategies and they can then consider using uh, a needle exchange program as part of that overall strategy. It was the worst moment in my HHS leadership in terms of a policy decision. I thought it was the most dangerous thing that Congress and the president could do. I mean, we had a strategy that would save lives, save people from getting infected, and we ought to use it. There are a few different theories about why Clinton came out against needle exchange at the last minute. One blames his drug czar, Barry McCaffrey, who cornered the president on Air Force One just before the press conference and made the case that changing the rule would condone drug use. Clinton would later say he believed Congress would simply pass a new funding ban if he lifted the old one. But according to Donna Shalala, his decision had more to do with pressure from Senate Democrats than anything else. Bill Clinton did it under political pressure because Democrats thought they were going to have trouble getting reelected. There were Democrats that bought the argument that it would enable drug use. Clinton's waffling led to a significant increase in national media coverage of needle exchange. Miss America 1998, Kate Schindel, spoke publicly about her personal evolution on the issue. I was very much against these programs when I first became Miss America. It's a really hot issue uh, as far as government is concerned right now because there is that catchphrase, needle exchange, and unfortunately there are a lot of people that don't read past the headlines. And I was sort of guilty of that, but then I was enlightened, I guess. (laughs) Four years later... Clinton said he had been wrong not to lift the ban. And about 14 years after that, in 2016, Congress quietly got rid of it. The new policy made it possible for federal funds to be used for anything a needle exchange program needed, except the syringes themselves. As we finish our work on this podcast, there's still no vaccine for HIV, and there's still no cure for AIDS. More recent medical innovations like PrEP have made it much easier for people to have sex safely, and treatments for people with HIV and AIDS have allowed many to live with undetectable viral levels. And yet, the UN estimates that of the nearly 40 million people worldwide who were living with HIV in 2020, a quarter did not have access to effective treatment. The trends that emerged in the 90s have also deepened, the racial disparities and the disproportionate impact on drug users. Meanwhile, most of us move through the world not thinking very much at all about AIDS. 
It's kind of like the ozone layer or Save the Whales, an issue people used to think it was important to care about. One thing that's become obvious to me during the COVID pandemic is how big a difference visibility makes. If someone you know gets sick, if you can hear the ambulances in the street, you pay more attention. You're more willing to take precautions. Then, as soon as the disease is out of sight, it becomes incredibly easy to pretend it's not happening at all. The people we spoke to for this podcast, the ones who witnessed the beginning of AIDS from up close, don't need to be reminded that the story does not yet have an ending. Many of them told us they hoped to live long enough to see the next big breakthrough. You know, the work is is essentially interminable until we have a cure and a vaccine. So we're still working on those same things. Forty years later, I'm still here and got the treatments, waiting for that cure, waiting for that vaccine, but still hopeful and still curious. We've come a long way. We've made a lot of progress on this disease so we can eradicate this virus. So that to me is what I would really, well, that would be my dream. That would, that's what I'd like to happen. We've lost so many people. We've lost so many lives. We have to remember this. We have to remember the struggle. Because it's only in remembering the struggle that you understand that you can fight, that you must fight. What patients are starting to ask me, because I start having a lot of gray hair, white hair, whatever, they're getting nervous that I may have a retirement in my future. And so what I try to do to assuage their concerns and fear is that you've got me from the very first case in New York, you've got me until hopefully the very last case after a cure is developed and I get to administer it to all of my patients and then I'll be happy to step down. And that's the way I leave it. It's a, I guess it's a fantasy. For all the people who survived those years, there are so many who didn't. I want to leave you with a clip from the funeral of Bobby Campbell. He was the first person with AIDS you heard in the series the nurse from San Francisco who turned himself into a poster boy for the disease. When Campbell died in 1984, he was remembered with a memorial service attended by a thousand friends, family members, and neighbors. One of the people who spoke was Campbell's partner, Bobby Hilliard. When um, Bobby was in intensive care, I left my backpack out in the waiting room, and I was in the room with him. After he died, I I went back to the waiting room, and sitting on top of the backpack was a little bell that I had never seen before, and someone left there, and I've been carrying it around in my pocket since then. And I'd like to say one more thing before ringing it. Love after death for Bobby. Fiasco is presented by Audible Originals and Prologue Projects. The show is produced by Andrew Parsons, Sam Graham-Felson, Madeline Kaplan, Ula Kulpa, and me, Leon Nafok. 
Our researcher is Francis Carr. Editorial support from Jessica Miller and Noor Wazwaz. Archival research by Michelle Sullivan. This season's music is composed by Edith Mudge. Additional music by Nick Sylvester of God Mode, Joel St. Julian, and Dan English, Noah Hecht, and Joe Valley. Our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Music licensing courtesy of Anthony Roman. Audio mix by Erica Wong, with additional support from Selena Urabe. Our artwork is designed by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. David Blum is the editor-in-chief of Audible Originals. Mike Charzik is the vice president of Audible Studios. Zach Ross is head of acquisition and development for Audible. Thanks to Peter Yassi, Percy of Berlin, Arlene Arevalo, Michael Helquist, Carrie Baker, Alice Gregory, Giannis Kulpa, Chris Roby, Stephen Fisher, and everyone at Audible. <laughs>